Welcome to From Lawyer to Employer, a Shipman podcast, bringing you the latest developments in labor and employment law, offering you practical considerations for your organization. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Good morning. Welcome to today's episode of From Lawyer to Employer, a Shipman podcast. I'm your host, Gabe Duran, and today I'm talking with my colleague and labor and employment lawyer, Jared Lucan, about the latest guidance from the NLRB General Counsel's Office. So this is our second installment, and uh, this topic is one that's right in my wheelhouse, and I'm happy that Jared's here to join me. Thank you, Jared. Thank you, Gabe, for having me. So, you know, the NLRB tends to be one of those, how do I say, politically motivated types of tribunals. It seems like with each change in administration, their decisions seem to change as well. What are you hearing about uh, what they're looking to do in the next few years? Sure. Well, that's a that's a great point that you make. I mean, as, as we know, the labor board is tied really to the administration that happens to be in power at that time. So we see every four or eight years a shift in what the agenda is and what the how the cases are going to come down, whether they're more pro or helpful to employers or more pro or helpful to employees and unions. And so with the Biden administration, what we're seeing, particularly from the general counsel's office, and the general counsel is the prosecutorial arm of the board, she has issued a memorandum back in August that sort of identifies a laundry list of cases and issues that the labor board would be looking to potentially overturn from cases that were issued during the Trump administration. So for example, one of the hot topics is always going to be protected concerted activity, right? And so what we saw during the Trump administration was a push to try to limit what is considered protected concerted activity in the workplace and limiting how much protection under Section 7 on the NLRA that employees would have. I think what we're going to see from this general counsel is a real push to find cases in which that can be expanded, in particular, beyond just the typical wages, hours, terms, and conditions of employment as we think of them in the traditional sense, particularly as we see these sort of social impact issues going forward, like Black Lives Matters and things of that nature. We might see cases get pushed into that direction from this general counsel and from this board about people having discussions in the workplace about social issues such as those could fall on the line of protected concerted activity. I always view the NLRB as like this pendulum swinging back and forth. I mean, this is not a political podcast in any way, and so we're not really reflecting on the wisdom of these changes. But we had the Obama-era NLRB, which seemed to be more pro-employee. Mm-hmm. And then in the Trump era, the, the pendulum kind of swung the other direction and started to loosen up some of those constrictions from the Obama era. So is this just the pendulum swinging back the other way? Yeah, I mean, something, as I said earlier, that we see every four to eight years, depending on what administration is in power at the time. We'd like to think that there's going to be some precedent that withstands, right, so that employers and employees together can have a better understanding of what is allowed or not allowed in the workplace. But because of sort of the political nature of this and the agendas in which certain administrations either get elected on or put forth in their campaigns, we get an idea of, of this pendulum swish, which was going to happen. And so the Trump administration was very pro-employer, for lack of a better term. And so we saw a lot of cases that undid what the Obama administration did in terms of union access, in terms of, as I said, protected concerted activity, 
in terms of organization, what types of units can be organized, whether very small to sort of wall-to-wall units. And so it seems, at least from the general counsel's memo that she issued back in August, that those are the types of cases that we're going to see that are going to come before the board, that they're going to have an initiative to overturn. It's kind of an interesting dynamic because the NLRB is, I guess you could say, like the Supreme Court of Labor Matters. You know, they're not the final say. It can be appealed. Their decisions can be appealed. But I mean, do you have an understanding what the general counsel's role in this is? Well, the general counsel doesn't make the decisions. So the labor board decides on what the law will be. But the general counsel and the, the individuals and the attorneys that work for the general counsel prosecute the cases. And so they have a lot of discretion on what cases are going to be forward and what arguments are going to be made and can sort of push the agenda for the members of the labor board to be looking at. And so if a case doesn't come before the labor board, the labor board can't overturn it unless they go through a different process such as rulemaking, but that doesn't work a lot for a lot of the the case law. Only the cases that become before the labor board can be overturned. And so there's always going to be a case out there that goes one way or the other as it relates to an issue. And so this general counsel is more likely to push the cases that they think are better to get to the agenda that they want to, which is to increase the rights of employees to engage in certain activities in the workplace, to allow better access to unions in order to organize more than they have now, in particular, whether or not certain off-duty individuals will be allowed access to an employer's premise. And so there's always that push and pull between property rights of the employer and the ability to discipline versus the employee's Section 7 rights to have access to unionization and be able to speak their mind. And so we'll see, I think, when the right cases come before the labor board, it started shifting more towards those Section 7 rights, right? The ability to organize and the ability for employees to speak their mind in the workplace, having some strength. Yeah, you know, the the term protected concerted activity is one of those terms of art that applies to Section 7 of the NLRA. But what we found, I mean, it's always been this way that that's not just union employees. Sure. You know, that can be any employee, really, if they band together for, for some purpose. And so, I mean, you know, we're guessing a little bit, but based on the general counsel memo, it seems like that's going to be a hot topic as well, right? Yeah, that is. And there's actually, there was a couple cases under the Trump administration that dealt exactly with that, whether it's in the union context or not, about an individual employee engaging in certain activity and whether that would be protected concerted activity, particularly whether it's in the in the workplace or not or on social media. And so I think we'll see this case hasn't come before us yet, but I think we'll see this board and this general counsel pushing cases where they're going back to more of the sort of inherent rights, right, about whether or not certain individual conduct is really inherently group conduct, although not obviously that way. Even if there's no obvious evidence that the person is speaking on behalf of others, if it impacts other employees, what they're raising, it might go back to this idea of that being protected concerted activity. But again, it doesn't matter whether it's a unionized context or not. A lot of times the cases can be outside of the union context. Employees, as you indicated, have the protection of Section 7 rights, whether they're unionized or not. Yeah, this is the thing that was, uh, it was so hard you know, just going back in history, in the Obama era, for example, employer handbooks and policies, and, and we saw all this activity that was basically overturning a lot of traditional employer policies that said, hey, this might be some sort of uh, limit on employees' rights uh, under Section 7 to, to band together and, and act together. And then we saw with the Trump era a reversal of a lot of those. But 
you know, the general counsel's memo speaks about this particular topic on employer handbooks. And so we might be now turning back the clock, you know, five or six years mm-hmm. to, to those types of cases again, don't you think? No, I think that's right. And it makes it difficult for employers to understand what they can and can't do in the workplace because we're looking at policy reviews and handbook reviews every four to eight years based on whether or not certain conduct might be run afoul of the NLRA or not, depending on which board is is there. But that's exactly an issue that will come before the labor board. And they've actually asked for briefs on it, right, about whether or not the Trump error decision stemming from the Boeing case about whether or not certain handbook provisions are going to be valid or not, right? And maybe going back to a, a much more objective standard of, did it, you know, would a reasonable employee in the workplace find that this violates their Section 7 rights, rather than these sort of bright-line categories that Boeing set up for whether or not, you know, there are certain per se valid provisions or not, depending on the case in which they're applied. So I think that's that's always something that's difficult for employers to deal with. And I think that is going to be a hot button agenda item, right? To look at those employee handbook provisions about whether or not there are certain ones that do violate Section 7 rights or not. Yeah. And that was, that was a big thing that uh, we spent a lot of time here in our firm was looking at social media policies, for example. And that these days, particularly with COVID, a lot of employees are not interacting together. So it's not the traditional situation where you have a group of employees huddled by the water cooler talking about terms and conditions of employment. It's all via electronic media these days. And so I think that, you know, with the the advent of COVID and, and we're seeing how the workplace has developed in that situation, that it's going to be even more prominent. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, when we're talking about social media, a lot of the cases that we had seen dealt with whether or not comments were disparaging or not and violating those type of provisions. And, you know, currently, given the new case law that came down in the Trump administration as it relates not only to the Boeing case with handbook provisions being valid or not facially, but even as applied, the Trump board sort of undid some of the other decisions that were earlier, whether Obama administration or earlier, as it relates to employee conduct or misconduct in the workplace, whether it be outbursts during the workday or whether it be outbursts on social media or if you're in a unionized conduct, uh, picketing misconduct. All of those had these sort of sporadic tests, right, applied that whether or not there was going to be misconduct in the workplace or not. What the Trump administration did is say these are all sort of all over the place, right? It's hard to figure out what is valid or what is invalid in the workplace. And so we're going to look at it simply in the sense of, you know, would I discipline this employee as an employer otherwise, right? Despite any of the Section 7 activity, would this person be disciplined. And so if an employer would discipline anyone for engaging in sort of outbursts in the workplace or what we would call a misconduct or a misheart workplace or disparaging conduct, then that potentially would be valid discipline, wouldn't run afoul of the NLRA. I think we're going to see this labor board, right, when it has the right cases come before it, go back to a more nuanced approach to that in terms of there being different standards depending on whether it's social media, whether it's in the workplace, whether or not it's in a unionized context and bargaining, or whether it's just an employee dealing with their employer specifically by themselves. So. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes it very difficult for employers out there, sure. you know, to keep up with these changes. I mean, that, as labor lawyers, you know, it's like it's job security, I guess, but it really is, it's difficult for employers to understand. And that, that was one of the problems I had a lot with the handbook reviews is that the standards that, that were being used were what would you know a reasonable employee think? Would they be confused about their ability to do certain things? And I think that, again, using that pendulum example, 
On one hand, it was very protective of employees, and then it got less protective of employees. And I don't know if we'll land in the middle, I'm hopeful. Yeah, well, I think that's what the the Boeing case really tried to do, right, was take certain rules that were so obviously not going to violate your Section 7 rights and make them into certain categories. I think that objective standard was always difficult because it's objective. What would a, a reasonable employee think? You know, it almost was sort of insulting to employees, right, that you that you're, you need to be protected because a confidentiality rule clearly prohibits you from talking about wages. When clearly the confidentiality rules are meant to protect certain important information in the workplace, particularly proprietary information, right? So I think that hopefully the board will get bad cases make bad law. So, you know, with the agenda going forward, if it's the right cases and it gives some clarity, that's helpful for employers as well. Yeah, true. You know, another thing that caught my eye, I think it was in the, the general counsel memo was, they were looking at remedies available, yep. and um, it sounded like they were going to look for more expansive remedies. For example, if uh, an employee is terminated and it's shown to be for anti-union animus or, or something else that's violative of the, the act, it sounds like they're really going to swing for the fences as far as remedies for these employees. Yeah, so you know there was some congressional push for punitive damages right under the NLRA, but what the what the general counsel has indicated is that they want to make the full panoply of remedies available that they can, and so they would be looking at if it's an unlawful termination, potentially things like consequential damages, front pay, and liquidated back pay. There's always an issue that comes up as it relates to, you know, whether purposely or not hiring undocumented workers, right? And what the penalties would be for that in terms of any kind of unjust enrichment to the employer. So they've actually spoken about whether or not that those employers would need to potentially sponsor work authorizations for their employees as a penalty. And then if we're talking about in the unionized conduct or union organization drive, you know, granting certain information to the the union could be a penalty requiring employers to reimburse unions for costs occurred in their organization efforts. If there's an unfair labor practice during the organization could be something that we're looking at and also providing certain training to supervisors and managers on the NLRA. So even beyond just the economic things, you know, looking at access to unions as a penalty, looking at training employers specifically on NLRA as a penalty is sort of beyond what we're seeing right now. Yeah, I mean, I guess the way I look at it is that, you know, employers should be following the law, you know, and if they don't, then obviously there should be consequences for that. But it'd be interesting to see just how expansive those remedies get and whether they're designed to remedy the the behavior at issue or go another step and be punitive. And it sounds like the, at least the general counsel is sort of viewing it as going more on that punitive side. So now it becomes maybe a preemptive measure or a disincentive for employers to act certain ways. Yeah, I mean, I think it is, I think it's both, right? I think there's an aspect of punishing really bad conduct, right, in a punitive way and potentially trying to, in the general counsel's mind, further the purposes of the act, right? And and But there are certain things in those memos that sort of suggest that you know, for example, sort of beyond the normal remedy, right? One example of that would be potentially hiring a qualified applicant of the union's choice in the event of a discharge of an employee who's unable to work. So it sort of goes beyond just sort of the punitive and nature of it to almost more advocating on the employee side and the union side, which isn't really what the labor board should be doing, right? It should be neutral in deciding cases, but you know, the memo suggests maybe otherwise. 
another thing that is in the uh, the memo or is, I guess, an initiative from the NLRB has to do with Weingarten rights. Mm-hmm. And so Weingarten, for our audience, you may be familiar with this, but this is basically the, the right of an employee in a union environment to have a union representative if they are coming into a meeting where they have a reasonable belief that discipline is going to result. That, you know, has been pretty consistent over the years. It sounded like from the general counsel memo that the NLRB might be looking to expand Weingarten. Is that right? It's possible, yeah. I think under, again, looking to whether or not we're expanding it beyond just the, at the moment, it only applies in the union context. And so there has been case law that has gone back and forth. And this is an issue that has gone back and forth over the years of whether or not an individual employee outside of a unionized context has the ability to have wine garden rights, right? To have a representative with them if they think they're going to be disciplined at any kind of meeting. The general counsel memo suggests that that might be a way, a, a route in which they might be looking to go again, sort of bringing us back to previous case law at the NLRB. Yeah, so this is truly one of those topics where it's been a flip-flop. Because I can remember, I think it was a pretty brief period of time where employees had the right, if you're a non-union employee, had the right to bring a coworker with them, for example, right? So that, I mean, who knows, we may be going back to that standard or something else. Uh, Which, you know, I don't know how I feel about that. I have some clients who actually will offer to have a coworker come in because sometimes it helps a difficult conversation. But it seems like that should be the employer's choice rather than required to do that. But I guess we'll have to see how that one turns out. Well, and in particular, right, in the unionized context, it makes sense, right? Because you're furthering the collective bargaining, right? You're furthering making sure that the contract's being followed and furthering those rights, which don't necessarily exist in the non-unionized context. But agreed. I mean, I think from a practical stance, sometimes as an employer, it might make sense to have an, another individual there to make sure that the pro- a process is followed and that, you know, there's witnesses to what happened, to be honest. Yeah, well, that's a great point. I mean, that's something we we advise clients all the time is to have a witness when you're dealing with disciplinary matters. And that certainly uh, holds true whether you there's a decision from the NLRB that requires it or not. But, you know, we'll just have to see how that plays out. And then, of course, what is the role of the person? Sure. I mean, the role is always limited in that. You Obviously, if you're having an investigative meeting, you want to hear from the employee, the employee that's being investigated. Even when there's a unionized context, right, that's a limited role in terms of maybe providing advice or clarifying questions, but we're not asking to hear from the representative. You want to hear from the employee. It's interesting, though, right, because you have to be concerned if you have confidentiality rules and investigations, those are things that you might want to consider, and those will certainly overlap if there's any change in the Weingarten rights about whether there is confidentiality in certain investigations or if you can maintain that with the coworker who might not be part of the investigation in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And that, that was a struggle because you have to make a judgment call at the outset, you know, as to kind of like weighing the benefit of having the other employee there as a, as a support mechanism or whether you want to exclude a certain employee because you need to make sure the investigation is done in a way uh, that there's no influence so that, you know, one employee's not going out and trying to tell other witnesses what to say and such. So uh, that'll be a really interesting one to to follow as it goes forward. I mean, I don't know of any cases currently that are on the docket for that one, but obviously if the general counsel is uh, highlighting it, that we could see one of those. Sure. All right. Well, that about does it for our time today. However, this is just part one of a two-part discussion between myself and Jared. And uh, in part two, we're going to talk about significant NLRB decisions and their effect on employers. And and in particular, there's a couple cases that actually hit on these uh, general counsel initiatives 
that are, are pending right now and are, could change the landscape of how employers and unions uh, interact and deal with certain issues. So that will be coming soon. And uh, we thank everybody for your time today and uh, look forward to you joining us again soon. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of From Lawyer to Employer, a Shipman podcast. This podcast is produced and copyrighted by Shipman and Goodwin, LLP, all rights reserved. The contents of this communication are intended for informational purposes only and are not intended or should not be construed as legal advice. This may be deemed advertising under certain state laws. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. We hope you will join us again.